Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good evening and welcome to the Event Horizon here on Krypton Radio. I'm Gene Turnbow, your host. And I'm Susan Fox, your other host. And with us is Massimo Marino. Hello, good evening everybody. And he is the author of Diamonds and Once Humans. That's right. Welcome to, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you with us. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Gene, and thank you, Susan, for having me with you today. I tell you, um, pounded through those books... I'm not sure I liked them, but I couldn't put them down, and I'm dying to know what happens next, so I like them. Well, that's good news. Uh, You you will know what happens next in June, because the the third novel is already in the hands of of my editor, so we will work through through the month of uh, April and May, and probably by the end of May should be ready for readers to see and read what happens next to to Dana Maintenance and the rest of, uh, of the group. It was certainly not the kind of read I expected. I, I read the first of the two books. I, I, I'm afraid I didn't have time to read the second one, but uh, I am looking forward to seeing what happens in it. Uh, the, uh, it's the... slow. It's, it's, it's a very measured pace for about the first three quarters of the book, and you think it's going to be, you know, the post-apocalyptic, you know, you never know what happened, and then suddenly you know what happened, and everything starts going at warp speed. Right. I don't want to spoil anything. I'm afraid to say anything about this book. <laughs> because so much well, of it is so much of it is that big reveal in the third act. Exactly. There's a, there's a big reveal, and uh, it, it happens with uh, with the strange premises, uh, different from all the other apocalyptic novels that you find around usually we notice that (laughs) (laughs) well you know the writer usually wants to write a book it doesn't find uh, anywhere else to read about uh so in this in this case it's uh uh i love the the genre uh the apocalyptics and the first encounters and where people are put through unworldly events that really test their intelligence their stamina their courage their heart uh, but I've always seen uh, these kind of stories uh, having to deal with uh, a tremendous amount of uh, uninterrupted uh, dangers, pages by pages, that is, uh, either aliens or zombies or terrible uh, viruses, etc. And everything is uh, pushing the, the heartbeat uh, to, to the maximum. I wanted to find a similar situation where the apocalypse arrives but it leaves uh, survivors in a state of befuddlement, amusement. They really don't know what happens. Apparently, there is no danger around them, but everybody's dead. And so it leaves them 
practically for three quarters of the book or so in a state where they fight just in order to maintain their own mental sanity rather than their physical safety uh, like it happens in, uh, in apocalyptic uh, novels around. So what happens in an ap apocalyptic novel where it's not your body that is in danger but it's your mind and your beliefs? And that's, uh, that's when I was reading the first book, that was the first thing that struck me was that, uh, uh, that it was being paced this way for a reason. Exactly. You know, if exactly, we were because, uh, no, um, no, we're not going outside that fence right now. We're dealing with what it's like to be in this world as a, as a human being, not dealing with the physical combat day to day. Exactly, and it is uh, it, it is a, a story where the man, the man, the, the main protagonist, the main character, is uh, mostly confronted with himself, with uh, his own beliefs, and he, he discovers himself little by little, page by page, little discovery uh, after little discovery, and realizes what is important in uh, in, in your life and what is uh, can be able to keep him on the sanity side of his. Uh, mental state of being and uh, to wake up the next day without uh, thinking about suicide so imagine in a world where like uh, if it had been struck by neutron bombs you know in the in the old times uh, of uh, the cold war we were thinking about this new threat of the neutron bombs that were able to kill everybody but leave the infrastructures around and the building standing so the wall the the external and the superficial uh, aspect and vision of the world around you wouldn't change, but life would disappear suddenly. And, and this is w what uh, started to uh, be the, the main theme in, uh, in, in Daimonus. Uh, usually, for example, people ask, uh, in order to trigger this kind of emotions and, uh, and thoughts in a, in a person, what would you do if tomorrow would be your last day. And instead, my question to, to the characters is, what would you do if tomorrow is the last day of everybody else? Because usually when, uh, when you think the first question, if tomorrow is your, is your last day, then you have nothing to, to lose because, you know, whatever you do, in any case, tomorrow is gone. And tomorrow is no more your problem. In the other uh, situation where everybody dies every day when you are alone, confronted with yourself is your problem. And so the answer must be dif different, and this is what I wanted to discover. I noted that the setting is uh, is sort of your your own neighborhood. You know, you're... Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You know, uh, Gene, what uh, people say that you uh, it's better to start with things you know about, and then you can move uh, with more confidence in the, in, into things that you discover while writing. Mm -hmm. uh, so instead of uh, imagining uh, a place or a setting uh, uh, that I needed uh, to invent entirely, I started from the things that I have every day under my eyes. And I tried in this way also, it was uh, easier to imagine these places in an apocalyptic situation as I wanted to have. Mm -hmm. uh, also because uh, Geneva and the surrounding, uh, during the weekend and in winter, at the late uh, evening hours, is rather post-apocalyptic. There's nobody around. <laughs> it's very quiet. Uh -huh. 
<laughs> so I I put myself in situation in town and other places where we, literally I was the only person around. There was no sound, really. Nobody wow. around in town or the, in the uh, less frequented districts, etc. And walking in the streets, the only noise that you hear is your shoes on the on the on the on the pavement and uh, with some uh, effort of the imagination i put myself in the same um situation that the main character of the novel would go and i try to convince myself i have a, a quite a vivid imagination that i was the only one man standing in that in that town and uh, so this this helped a lot uh, uh, in order to feel the story and feel the the emotions and the, and the feeling of the main characters it's uh, it sounds like it would be very easy to believe that you know very easy to convince yourself of that in a, in an environment like that yeah yeah exactly and uh, and i also think that in order to um really communicate feelings and emotion to the readers somehow you you need to be able to leave through those uh, yourself as a writer you you cannot simply report a story as if you were uh, a journalist you have to be affected by what you're going to describe. And if uh, if a scene or a, uh, if a situation doesn't move you to anger or to tears or to shivering, how can you possibly communicate that same uh, to, to your readers? And so I tried as much as possible to convince myself and to somehow to create a sort of a, a parallel reality uh, while I was writing uh, Diamonds and uh, and Once Humans, it's uh, you certainly succeeded. I I, uh, I found myself very much wrapped up in the uh, in the emotional states of all of your characters. Uh, you didn't really have any throwaway characters. Uh, no, definitely not in the first book. You you will have some throwaway characters in the second one when you <laughs> read that, uh, because the, the 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 three novels are. Uh, Growing and the and the the characters as well, uh, as in uh, as in uh, uh, scenario and um, places where the action uh, happen uh, to be. The the first one is very intimate. is around uh, Geneva and France uh, neighborhoods uh, around the place where Dan uh, lives, and in encompasses events around a very, very small number of characters, so it's very intimate. The second one, book, goes into affecting events that take all over the place on the planet. And Dan is brought to explore different areas, discover more things about himself. There are many more characters, there are more interactions uh, with other uh, sentient beings. And the third one that, that will be published in, uh, in June or late May, will involve uh, the entire galaxy and there I, I started to play more with my scientific background in order to envision uh, uh, a galactic society where is uh, uh, structured around uh, uh, quantum communications uh, and uh, uh, interstellar travel through wormholes tell us tell us a little bit about your uh, your your background your scientific background i think our audience would find that fascinating <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm a physicist as a, a, as a background, and I've been working in, in the fundamental research for almost uh, two decades uh, on both sides of the ocean. So I started with the CERN laboratory around Geneva, uh, near Geneva, and some of the scenes, for example, in Diamond, is the first book happens and takes place uh, 
in the laboratory itself uh, in the control room of one of the main experiments uh, near the accelerators and the detectors. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I worked uh, with the Lawrence Berkeley lab in, uh, in California uh, for another decade. Uh, and dealing with uh, particle physics and data analysis, uh, detector simulation and experimentations and uh, quantum mechanics and um, weird stuff uh, in, uh, in, in the physical world. And uh, this helps in order to write science fiction, I have to say. Yeah, I'd, I'd say quantum mechanics pretty much defines weird stuff. Exactly. <laughs> okay, here's, here's a conversation starter. A single word, tetraquark. Tetra quark. Well, <laughs> you know, this is. Uh, um, let's say that uh, the uh, knowledge that we have uh, today um, happens to grow uh, continuously. Uh, quarks is uh, considered to be uh, one of the smallest, uh, um, now the smallest um, elemental uh, particle that constitute matters. This is relatively new because before. People were thinking that uh, uh, leptons uh, were the smallest one, and even before was uh, atoms to be the smallest point-like uh, constituents of matter. Uh, quarks come in uh, different flavors, so there's not one single quark. There's the top, the bottom, the charms, and the beauty. Uh, of course, uh, those are just names given by physicists, maybe because sometimes you have to have fun with science as well, because certainly a quark is not beautiful or is not strange. And there is not top and bottom in, this, uh, in the microscopic world, but those are the names of uh, of, of the quarks. And uh, there are also theories that, that who knows, maybe fundamental matter is even smaller than <laughs> themselves. Right. And, uh, well, this is the eternal quest of uh, try to push the envelope of your knowledge in uh, in, in physics and in cosmology and in every branch of the science. Well, in particular, the word tetraquark is almost a. Uh, uh, it's it's almost a that's this week's yeah that's discovery, this apparently. week's discovery is uh, uh, the discovery of the hadron particle. Well, um, it is uh, something that was uh, uh, let's say an hypothetic uh, uh, particle phenomena in, in measurements uh, that was composed uh, uh, this exotic particle composed of uh, four quarks, uh, and uh, it was uh, um, um, let's say. Uh, uh, theory ties into the model, but never discovered before. So, uh, the, the things that is beautiful in the in, in in the current knowledge in the standard novel, in the standard model, sorry, not the novel. You know, it's the writer and the physicist uh, somehow. <laughs> yes. Left and right. <clears throat> uh, so the standard model describes things uh, that we have yet to see. So it's very exciting when something happens, and. Uh, uh, shows that uh, the standard model is still able to, um, let's say, let uh, scientists uh, uh, find uh, and, cre- and uh, discover new, new things, a new type of matter, essentially. It, it's, uh, I, thought that the, I thought that the appearance of the, uh, the Hadron particle was, uh, was actually, a, actually broke the model, where we anticipated that quarks only existed in threes, and that uh, a particle that used four quarks uh, was something that we did not expect to see. Well, yes and no. It was a, uh, it was a, a particle that was uh, uh, maybe supposed to be existing, but not at the level of energies that were um, reachable uh, today. So the the important thing, and in, uh, in the, uh, let's say in the building blocks of matter as uh, as we know them, 
is that uh, one of the things that uh, uh, needs to be um, created into the into the accelerator is the precise energy at the collision point, so that you can um, create particles that will have uh, masses around the amount of energy that you are delivering there. And this comes from uh, the equality between the uh, mass and energy that comes from uh, the uh, relativity from Einstein. So the energy and mass is practically the same thing, uh, just by, uh, you know, the E equal mc square. Um, so in order to find new particles, you need to have uh, the right amount of energy. The thing that happens with this uh, uh, new meson is the call is the meson Z, uh, is that it wasn't expected really uh, to be at that particular range of uh, of um, energy, uh, and so this is the um, let's say the, the the excitement for for uh, for physicists that they found the tetraquark uh, particles uh, already. Uh, with the um, at the energy say, levels they're currently exactly. working with, exactly. What, which which uh, which indicates that there that uh, the range of possibility might be slightly compressed over what they had predicted. Uh, exactly. In a sense, in a sense, the more you advance, the more you are able to refine uh, the uh, the area that is a little bit fuzzy in the theory allows you to be able to predict a little bit better things uh, in the uh, in the future. For example, now that we have uh, the evidence that the neutrons uh, uh, can interact uh, and create tetraquarks, now people can now starting to believe that there might be pentaquarks uh, particle, hexaquarks particles, or even uh, uh, other kind of exotic um, um, elemental matter uh, <laughs> uh, particle of the matter that you know, it's it's a, it, it, uh, in a sense, it's like a, it's like a toy box for a for a for a boy who doesn't know what it is. There. <laughs> yeah, and every you, time you it, it picks no something uh, out and say, "Wow, if there is this, maybe there is something else like that, and it's even bigger, etc." So it's it's a perennial discovery. Another thing that is uh, also interesting is, uh, and I wrote uh, even today uh, an article on my blog, is the fact, for example, that people are now starting to believe uh, that the wormholes can actually really be used in order to travel from the star to star. Oh, now uh, that's interesting. A, and this is, this is where we touch back on science fiction again. Exactly, you know, because we the, use this as a convenient plot device so that galactic civilization is possible at all. Definitely. Exactly, because, uh, of course, you, you cannot have a communication based on the speed of light, nor as a travel and nor as, as uh, messages. If you, if you need to have a, a society that can really live and communicate and interact at that level of, of distance, you, you cannot travel as slow as light. You need to go faster than that, even if light is extremely fast. But, you know, there are stars there are hundreds of years, uh, light years, uh, from uh, from us, and what kind of conversation can you have or interview an alien writer if uh, you have to wait hundred years to answer <laughs> to, to listen to the answer to your question? So, um, uh, and these are things that are mathematically impossible. Uh, Stephen Hawking even said uh, that uh, uh, the beauty of those uh, of these, uh, uh, let's say, mathematical possibilities is that they are exquisitely difficult to realize, but not impossible, and this is where where the uh, let's say the fundamental edge, the edge science or the fringe science, plays with uh, with the theory and with the and the ideas.
and and uh and uh, so we see um, science feeding back into science fiction. All the stuff that we thought might be possible is starting to emerge as mathematical possibilities. Well, you, you, you know, this has always been the, the case. Um, for example, Julius Verne uh, has been the first one to, to, to write a novel about the travel to the moon. At the time, uh, at the time when not even the airplanes were supposed to, to be able to carry people, uh, we always had uh, uh, the ability to imagine the, the future, uh, thinking of uh, uh, impossible things with the level of technology that we had, but extrapolating from uh, what you knew in terms of what if. So the science fiction writers always ask themselves, what if? Uh, we remove all the technical difficulties and we come to realize uh, these ideas. And then you have the travel to the moon, which happened in, uh, in, in the 60s, uh, but it was a science fiction idea before. So today, the, 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 the uh, possibilities uh, that are treated by science fiction are still considered to be totally impossible, but who knows what happens in, in 100 or 200 years to our technology and the science breakthrough. Right now, for example, we have the, um, the uh, general relativity of Einstein that really doesn't talk to quantum mechanics, and there are two different models of uh, trying to describe phenomena at the macroscopic and microscopic level in the universe, and people are trying to find this grand unification theory, and what kind of discoveries and possibilities will bring if a genius in 10 years, in 20 years, in 100 years from now on will be able to create this grand unification theory so that we will have a quantum mechanic understanding of gravity and of all forces. We'll be able to bend space and time and create wormholes. We will be able to travel from one star to another in no time because distance will disappear as a concept and speed will disappear as a concept. We don't know. We've, now it's science, science fiction, but the theory today doesn't tell us that this is impossible yet. What well, if? I, I don't know. Speed and distances is no longer concepts. Doesn't doesn't feel right. It's you know intuitively odd when you know you complain about having to drive from you know Geneva to Paris one day. Well, exactly, exactly. Well, I wouldn't say that we will be able to bend uh, the space so that Geneva and Paris will coexist, but uh, the theory in the same place, in the same spot, but the theory in the, in the um, general relativity from Einstein, and this is also how he explains uh, the, the gravity itself, that mass is able to bend the, the, uh, um, the fabric of space-time. So, you imagine that the, the more massive uh, an object is, the deeper the gravity well it creates, so that space is curved around uh, an, an object. Now, this curvature, in principle, mathematically, can be extended to n no matter which distance, so that you can create a tunnel from one point in space and a, at a distant point in space by bending from the two extreme points the space and make them unite at the center so that you create a tube between the two things. And the idea is that between the tube, the law of physics as we know them do not obey or do not work as we expect. And there, for distance and, uh, and, uh, and speed, there is uh, uh, distance uh, covered in a certain amount of, spouse, uh, of time, 
has no more the classical meaning. So you will tunnel through a, a black hole that is the entry point into the uh, Einstein-Rosen bridge, this, this tunnel of the wormhole, and exit instantly uh, through a white hole on the other side of the universe. But it doesn't take any, any, any time, it doesn't cover any distance, but it suddenly you disappear from one place and you appear to, to another. This is, uh, the theory says that it's possible. We will see when, the, when we will be able to do that. Uh, it brings to mind the question, though, if the, uh, if the laws of physics are nullified or uh, dramatically altered uh, at the interface of the wormhole, wouldn't that do something nasty to our structure? <laughs> you know, yeah. What if? Yeah, if you if you if you go in one side, are you necessarily going to be put together the same way when you come out the other side, or put together a, at all? I don't want to be a blob uh, of strawberry jam at the end. Yeah, we we don't know. Whale and honestly, a bowl of honestly, Gina, Joseph, we, we don't know. But I I'm I'm sure that the way humans have been progressing, this is not going to stop uh, the researchers to try. Um, the fact that uh, something might not work as expected uh, has ne never been stopping uh, the uh, scientists in any in any branches. Not because they're reckless, but because the drive uh, to know and the drive to understand is uh, always uh, overcoming the fear of uh, of a possible risk. Does it strike you that uh, that the path of discovery that we have embarked upon? Uh, appears to be a little too simple as though we find what we expect to see because i mean uh, one of the weird things about quantum mechanics is that uh uh we we can have indeterminate states and multiple things are true at once until you make an observation right what if the same thing is happening on a larger scale with our own scientific exploration we find what we expect to see, and so the universe builds itself in front of us as we go, like a self-assembling road. In, in a sense, this is also what brings uh, the idea of uh, multiple parallel universe, uh, because every, every possible state has uh, somehow similar possibility to happen. What if uh, the same observer makes a different choice? Uh, does that mean that at the quantum level there are parallel universe that... Uh, uh, can uh, coexist all the time, and we are simply one incarnation of a timeline that is uh, quantum mechanically defined at each step in our existence. Uh, in some sense, I'd say that science, uh, it's even at that level, it's even more fascinating than, uh, than science fiction, uh, because uh, it gives you the, uh, let's say, the possibility that amazing things might actually happen, and there are uh, brilliant minds that are trying to, to discover things in order to make uh, that uh, a reality, uh, like the wormholes or like the, the, the quantum entanglement that in principle would allow, allow to have us instant communication or exchange of messages, disregard of any distance between the two uh, people or the two persons that are in, uh, in, in, in communication uh, at the same time. So, um, or like the yes, yes and Western. no, yes and no, because there are there are things that uh, are expected, but science has also been through things that were unexpected and that surprised uh, the the scientists when they've been discovered. So the fact that um, some of those are expected is because uh, 
lots of brilliant uh, minds that mm -hmm. spent uh, an numerous number of hours to try to understand it. We find that removing all the less probable uh, op um, possibilities of solution and try to concentrate on what was most probable to happen. And um, reasonably so, this most probable sometimes happened to be the things that are then found uh, in an experimental way. Well, when two different scientists have two different expectations, you have your automatic uh, <laughs> quantum uh, split there. Well, if you like, for example, uh, Stephen Hawking didn't believe uh, the CERN would have been able to find uh, the, the Higgs particles, or what the, uh, the general public knows as uh, the God's particle. And he, uh, he bet $100 on that, and he lost. Maybe there's a, <laughs> a universe that we actually uh, invited people to dinner with his uh, winning bet. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um... Uh, back getting, we sort of wandered far afield of your books. I hope that uh, you didn't get get fired from the lab the way Daniel did. <laughs> um, sort of, <laughs> but not <laughs> the lab. <laughs> so, so, um, yeah, I was thinking, you know, how how would your coworkers have felt about being completely obliterated in, uh, you know, in like the first act of the I book? I bet they know now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, some, some of them read the book and, uh, and, they, and they liked it a lot. And uh, some of my ex-coworkers recognized the places and the environment. Mm -hmm. anyway. But this is exactly our place. So, yeah, yes, absolutely. Uh, and there are also, <laughs> also some neighbors here that uh, know that uh, they have been uh, called uh, remorsefully, but uh, without any regret. And um, at the beginning, people were really especially those who knows me and my family I said, but, oh, but this is, uh, this is great. This is, we can really recognize you and uh, your wife and uh, the mm -hmm. things that happen around you are our places and uh, the scenarios of people who live in Geneva have been very much recognizing places and squares and streets and uh, locations and, uh, and shops and malls. Uh, but as always, as always, everything is uh, is a puzzle, and and, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, there are many many ties. So there are some ties that come from real life experience, and others that uh, come from extrapolating and uh, and creating a new ones. What it does give it is a solid air of authenticity. It gives us uh, it gives us a solid grounding, uh, so that we can we can devote our attention to the story and what's happening instead of. Uh, instead of being distracted by the inconsistencies in the backstory and uh, the description of the environment and, Ooh, and this that mall is in the wrong place and <clears throat> it's been taken out of the store no <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely uh, yeah this is I think this is uh, um, always important uh, even uh, even if uh, if a writer were to imagine a, a totally invented place and situation like it happens in the, in, in the other books because of course I didn't travel to, to distant planets in the, in the galaxy, but I try to imagine the same way those places uh, as I imagine my wandering in, in the first book uh, around the town of Geneva or the countryside. And uh, you have uh, to create a, a fair amount of uh, details of the scenery in your mind uh, and find those that are meaningful uh, to be written. So not everything that we imagine happened to uh, be in the story, but you need to create a lot more in order to uh, filter and make a good selection of what needs to be shown to, to the reader so that his or her imagination can be triggered and uh, motivated to turn the pages and discover what happened. Their daughter 
got my attention. We we have a teenager here too, and what if he was the last kid on earth, and with the only prospect for his future is taking care of his parents and then being alone? But, you know what a terrible, terrible thing. Absolutely, I think uh, I think that 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 part uh, was uh, really for me uh, digging into one of uh, the fears and dramas uh, of teenagers, uh, you know, ages. The one of uh, being alone because uh, they are rejected by the group, and here, in a sense, is a teenager that is alone because it's being rejected by the entire humanity. And uh, there are in, in many situations where where the the little daughter of uh, the uh, of Dan mentioned in the story uh, literally feels that she is the one who has the most cruel destiny even more than uh, than her parents because after all her parents have lived their lives and she has no way to imagine her future but living alone and uh, uh, dying probably on the tomb of her parents one one day and this is also one of uh, of uh, the theme that uh, uh, keep uh, Dan to find the solutions, not really for himself, but uh, trying to find a way to create a future for his daughter. So it's one of uh, the motivations that keeps uh, the character from uh, from committing suicide, for example, and, and decide that uh, this is too much to take on for, uh, for a single human being and uh, let's join the others who have disappeared. What did you learn doing the first novel that you were able to apply in the second novel, as a writer, well, I learned um, I learned quite a few things in terms of uh, writing techniques. I have to say, uh, this is a part of a series of uh, blog posts in, uh, on, on my website as well, where I go into details of the things that I discover about uh, writing a novel, about how to. Uh, share emotions and how to describe things, uh, but I also learn something uh, about me and uh, and about uh, what makes uh, the real uh, glue that uh, keeps everything united in the, in everyday uh, life. Um, putting myself into Dan's shoes and try to feel his uh, loneliness and his quest for a reason why we're here. Somehow I discovered that uh, it is the little things that we give for granted that keeps us alive and keeps us uh, in place uh, and give a meaning to, to ourselves. It's the smile of uh, your son or daughter in the morning. It's uh, the greeting of your wife or your husband when you come back from, from work or uh, looking at a plant that you uh, put the, the wind during the the. the uh, previous season, and, and you see that it's uh, blossoming flowers, the next one. And instead, in the world that uh, we are living today, uh, we gave a lot of importance to things that uh, have a, a price tag on. And uh, we tend to, to consider those things most important uh, with respect to things that uh, you can't put a price on and that you will discover how important they were if you happen to not have them around you anymore. So even uh, even the laughter of people at the coffee shops when you walk is something that uh, warms your heart and, and keeps you alive as a human being. There is a, a scene in the book where Dan walks uh, 
alone uh, in, in, in Geneva. And the only thing that uh, you hear exactly is this, uh, the echo of his steps. And suddenly his memory is flooded with uh, what, has, what he lost and, he, and, and what he gave for granted. And he feels a terrible void when he remembers how feel of and uh, full of life were the streets before. There was the the students of uh, the conservatory uh, play music for the bystanders and people at the coffee shops and uh, with the tables around and uh, customers are getting in and out of, uh, of places and uh, the beautiful girl that walks uh, uh, with a fast pace and his delectable shoes uh, resonate in the town and, and suddenly he feels the absence of all of this and the, the terrible uh, struggle that uh, he faces living without anyone around. So the fact that we are surrounded by things that we, we cannot buy, the laughter of a child or the smile of a person of a good morning from a total stranger, uh, he discovered that these are most important than uh, wearing a Rolex when you have uh, you are 40 or driving a, a Ferrari or all the mm -hmm. other things that we we take for the sign that we succeeded in life are totally meaningless and doesn't define what does it mean to be to be a man or to be a woman in the, in our world. Yeah, when you strip when you strip away all the artifice of uh, you know all the 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 symbols of one's personal monetary success, you're left with your humanity. Exactly. That doesn't exactly. slow him down for borrowing a, a Ferrari from a showroom and driving it around town, though. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But uh, you should not uh, attach your happiness or your individuality to that fact alone. It's not what defines you. And this is uh, what uh, Dan discovers, that it's not, it's not the things that he owns, it's not the things that he can acquire that... Uh, uh, define you as a man. So, did you spend uh, uh, did you spend a good deal of time outlining the entire story arc for the trilogy, or or? Uh... Well, um, the the trilogy became a trilogy uh, while writing the the first novel. I, I didn't have in mind uh, um, the the entire scope of uh, of uh, the three novels uh, connected together, uh, nor I had in mind uh, at the beginning the fact that, uh, in a sense, it was a, a, a personal journey through change and through discovery, a little bit like the Dante Divina Commedia, where you go from through the hell, the purgatory, and then to paradise, uh, without uh, wanting to make any comparison, nor say that uh, Daimoness is the equivalent of hell, and once humans, uh, the purgatory, or the rise of the phoenix, the paradise. Uh, but... Um, uh, the story grew and took up uh, its own life. This is something also that I discovered uh, while writing, uh, is that at a certain point you, you give so much to the characters and to the events that they become almost uh, real in your mind and they start to behave, uh, say things and do things that surprise you as a writer. So you become a sort of uh, first reader or your own story. Now there are... Uh, uh, in, in writing and, and courses and uh, 
creative uh, writing, uh, um, university studies, etc. These two extremes, the planters and the plotters uh, for, for writers and novelists, where the plotters are the ones who make a, a line out of everything that happens from the beginning to the end and then fleshes out to the skeleton mm-hmm. uh, of the story, while the planters have an initial idea, more or less know where to go and, uh, and start and discover things while they're writing. I found myself uh, oscillating like a, like a particle or, or a, <laughs> like, a wave, <laughs> like a wave function between these two extremes in different parts of, uh, of the novel. So some areas were things that I really didn't know where they could uh, bring me to. Others were uh, instead things that I had clearly in mind. Uh, I, I need to show this to happen. I need to show these feelings. I need to show this discovery. And, uh, and this is how I will do it. Um, and I believe that, that uh, if a writer tells you that he's 100% a planner or 100% a plotter, I rather tend to not believe that it's more a way to give oneself a, a label just because rather than reality. Well, it's probably because that's the thing that they emphasize. Um, you know, they think more about that one thing than the other. They so, hope yeah. it works that way. And, yeah, and they hope it works that way. Exactly. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, the question, you know, uh, of, of, uh, of free will. You know, do we have free will? Is everything we do up to us? Or is it all laid out in a grand scheme and, and, uh, and we follow along and have no choice? Well, the third possibility is something I like to call predestined free will. Points A and B are laid out for us, but how we get there is pretty much up to us. And that's kind of how, that's kind of what you were saying. Um, yeah. You know, with with how how you build a story, you 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 plot out the major points, but how you get your characters there is going to depend on the 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 meta rules of behavior that you've set up for your characters in the first place. Well, he could ride a Absolutely. dragon, or he could ride a horse, or he could go through a wormhole. I mean, those are three different stories. <laughs> yes, although through a wormhole will be faster. Uh, there is a nice uh, a nice image, mental image that from uh, from another wide writer, Eel Dotterov, that uh, he says the writing. Uh, for him, and I discovered that this also very much applied to, to me as well, it's like driving at night uh, through roads that you don't have a map for, but you know that you need to reach a certain destination. So you know that you're starting from point A, you go from point B, you're riding at night, and you can only see through where your headlights are able to show you things. The more you advance, the more things you see. Sometimes you take a wrong turn or there is a twist in the road that you didn't expect and you find yourself in a in different situation. And, and, and this is how, uh, in, in many situations, the, the story evolved. There was a, a clear, a, a clarity that was fading away uh, as, uh, as the story progressed and uh, toward the end of, uh, of the novel. So toward the end of the novel was uh, fuzzy and blurry and it became more clearly the more uh, uh, words appeared on uh, on screen and it is an interesting way of uh, of uh, seeing a novel uh, take place and takes mm-hmm. life uh, in your mind and then uh, and then on paper well that kind of explains uh, the big sudden reveal at the end and and our, our in in the third act there was a, there was a big information spill that lasted several pages and right and uh, 
you know, not not much way to foreshadow much of that. No, and this is also uh, was on purpose because um, in in reality, uh, I, I put myself in the situation of uh, of uh, uh, of Dan over there and what the uh, the the, the sentient beings uh, uh, were trying to do. And there was no real uh, meaningful or realistic way to foreshadow any of this. Everything should have come as a punch in the stomach to, to Dunn and just tumble him out of his balance and arrive like a, like a sudden avalanche. So you, it's like you enter into, into, a, into a building that looks solid and you touch a corner and everything collapses. So I, I really wanted to have... A, this uh, situation for the reader to get to that point still without having any clue whatsoever of what could possibly be mm-hmm. and having this deluge of this flood of uh, of information that also was bringing with itself the weight of uh, the centuries and the millennia of discoveries that is put on the shoulder of uh, of Dan some of the readers said oh but that is too much it really was overwhelming and, and this is exactly what I wanted to have because Dan, in that uh, uh, end of uh, part of that uh, of the novel, is totally is crushed by the, the the information that he receives. That he's uh, changed and is uh, revolted like the globe inside out. And uh, if there was uh, some foreshadow, this effect would have not been uh, possible to achieve. That's some readers have worked very well with others less, but you know the the, the perfect novel that pleases everyone doesn't exist. It's uh, it's still the uh, the amount of information that was conveyed. I mean, there was a great deal of background information in that big reveal that uh, that I'm not sure would have been relevant to the reader at that moment. Um, That's diplomatic. I mean, Dan knew knew what happened in his childhood, but he doesn't think about it every day. (laughs) Uh huh. Yeah, it's it's. it was it was a, a a big chunk of exposition, and it's uh, yeah, but you know, it was necessary. Yeah, I see that it was. I see that it was. Uh, so you are uh, you are now about to publish uh, uh, number three, number three, uh, and that's exactly. going to be coming out in June. Uh, mm-hmm. I I take what it you're still working on you're still writing it. Uh, no, actually, oh, it's with the editors. With the editor, so it is now with the editor. So the editors will uh, now look at it. So um, mm-hmm. uh, I finished um, a couple of months ago. I've been working with uh, my beta readers, and uh, I have uh, a group of six people that read uh, my novels uh, before everybody else. They mm-hmm. provided me with uh, their impressions, their feedback. So trying to close uh, or fill or possible logic uh, loopholes and inconsistencies, and, and now the the novel has been taking care of all uh, the things that have been raised and uh, and now it is uh, the editing uh, work uh, toward the finish line okay so after book three what what you writing do you have well I have uh, I have in mind uh, uh, a continuation so you know it's it's uh, it's like the tetrak works uh, that could be a penta quarks particle and an extra quarks trilogy that is made out of six books. <laughs> like in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know. they, right. They, they published a, well, a batch of five books that said the, the increasingly incorrectly named Yeah, the increasingly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the, there is a, 
that is an, uh, one thing that um, I also try to uh, do in the, in the series uh, as the, the way that uh, being thought of uh, that I didn't find uh, in many others. Um, so in a sense, this is also a different thing because uh, usually when you have uh, uh, books that are in a series where the same character uh, is uh, uh, narrated through different events, usually it's always the same recipe. You have uh, the same character, the same uh, actions, the same mm -hmm. reactions, the same um, persona that is mm -hmm. described. Uh, as if uh, the character himself was not learning from the previous books or not growing from the previous books. And instead, in, uh, in, uh, in, in the Diamondist trilogies and in the other novels that I have uh, uh, right now sketching in my mind, Dan and the other characters do change a lot from, uh, from first book to the second and even more to the third. Uh, because uh, they go through life-changing events. They cannot be the same person uh, when uh, the second novel starts or the third novel starts. The things that happen to them are so disruptive that the character needs to veer off in one direction or the, or the other. Uh, and sometimes I don't find this uh, in the series, and, and this is a little bit disturbing because... Uh, creates characters that are immutable and uh, then after a while removes the plausibility of uh, that uh, uh, of the character himself as if, as if he was a non-human a robot that mm -hmm. was not uh, learning and uh, and this is definitely not happening with uh, with Dan and the others it's i'm i'm uh, i'm taken by the fact that uh, that the characters are 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 set up with a such an elegant foundation for their emotional uh, composition uh, that, that allows for this kind of uh, character growth. Uh, a lot of, uh, this is definitely a character novel. I mean, this, yeah. this, the first one, Diamond, is, is definitely yes, a character, character novel. Yes, character driven. Yeah. There are, um, we could go to we'll tell you, it's, it's a novel that Michael. people who, who loves a lot of actions, for example, probably uh, will feel a little bit weird or not uh, uh, what they're used to. But if they get into into the, the, the character, so if they leave the novel through the eyes of Dan, then they might feel that lots of uh, the things that happens happens at, uh, at the intimate and, and personal mm -hmm. level rather than on uh, material events on uh, uh, outside of, uh, of the character. Susan's brought up a very good point. Um... Michael in New York. Yes. <laughs> there's there's a there's a whole other novel there. Uh, practically, yes. There's also uh, other novel, and uh, that part uh, uh, somehow is, uh, you know the dogs connect always. Um, in the third book, uh, there's a connection, um, so that part is not forgotten. Okay. Excellent. Uh, definitely is a, is a novel uh, per se. In principle, one could write a diamond is two on the other side of the pond and mm -hmm. see what happened to, to, to Michael and, and the rest of the gang over there. Because uh, uh, it, it is even hinted uh, on, uh, on, on the second volume on Once Humans, uh, what happens uh, in, in this part of the world, in Europe, in, uh, in the Mediterranean basin, uh, is different than uh, the events that uh, took place in, uh, in the continental U.S., uh, and the the two, uh, let's say, in, in some senses, the, the two characters of the old continent and the new continent 
uh, do appear in uh, in the second novel uh, as a contrasting uh, role uh, with respect to their interaction with the main uh, uh, architects of the events uh, that happens on the planet. Having read the second book, what you mean mm-hmm. by that? And I also wonder about the other continents. You know? Right. Well, it will be interesting to see, uh, uh, you know, fan fiction. Uh, writing uh, little stories about their own uh, village and see how they reacted to, to the events that uh, take place in the, in Diamondus. Uh, the way the way uh, the um, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey came out out of fan fiction around Twilight. Mm. I'm inviting fans to to write fictions in other places of the world. <laughs> it would be interesting to see what comes out. Oh, that... well, we should we should work on that, sweetie. Well, that would be fun. So I'm working on. Uh, story development on a new uh, space opera for Krypton Radio. So I'm oh. always always looking for new ideas and ways of dealing with the character problems because uh, we have no idea how long the story's going to run. So it has to be character-driven. Exactly. And uh, in, in a sense, uh, in a sense the, the story can be a character itself, but uh, uh, I always like best when, uh, when there is a, a real... Uh, anchor to to a human being, to to a personality that drives uh, the story and the events, and, and I can uh, make uh, my own interpretation of what happens in a novel through the eyes of uh, of um, of a character um, more than uh, more than uh, uh, those uh, uh, stories that are based uh, essentially in in, in an, an enormous uh, uh, long sequence of. Uh, connected events like uh, wars or zombies or things, and those are essentially the events rather than the, the, the character stories, that the characters react to what happens rather than uh, be part of, uh, of uh, the story. In a sense, in a sense, Diamondist and, and also the other volumes, the characters are really active, and uh, what happens is because of their choices. Uh, they're not reactive uh, to some uh, uh, superpower uh, full uh, series of events that overwhelms them. They well, always they, are they somehow they, able to make choices. First, but at least what they think matters in the story. Yeah. So well, let's see. Story. So uh, where can our listeners buy the first two books, Diamondus and Once Humans? Okay. The, 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 uh, the first two books are available as uh, e-books, paperback, and also as audiobook. Uh, they can be found uh, on Amazon, as, uh, of course, but also on the major uh, retailers like uh, Barnes & Nobles or, or iTunes. Uh, Nook, uh, and uh, they, because they are distributed uh, also electronically, they could also find uh, the physical books by ordering them at uh, at their local uh, bookstores. I I somehow took the, uh, the, the let's say the amusement of uh, going around uh, on Google uh, to various bookstores in uh, in the world, the United States and Europe, and um, to see whether my books appeared in their online catalog, and they are they are there. For example, UK. Guys can buy the the books and order them uh, at foils. Uh, uh, you can even find diamonds at Walmart. You can go to Walmart uh, store and uh, order diamonds uh, from there. In a couple of days, they will uh, give it to you. You'll probably not find it on the shelf because uh, I think that the number of uh, uh, physical copies that are distributed around is very very small. But practically, you can order the physical books, so the paperback edition uh, uh, everywhere in the world. Otherwise, it's the digital e-books and uh, Amazon is your best, uh, or let's say the first the first place. But uh, if you're a new creator, you can find your own cowboy as well. So 
essentially everywhere. <laughs> Massimo Marino, uh, thank you for appearing with us on the Event Horizon this evening. This has been one of the most illuminating, uh, wide-ranging discussions <laughs> we've ever had. And uh, we're very glad to have had you with us this evening. I'm very glad uh, to you, Jean and Susan. Uh, very glad that you took your time to have me as, uh, as your guest and uh, that you read and liked the novel as well. And I hope <laughs> to, to have you for the Rise of the Phoenix uh, in, the, in, few, in few weeks. Absolutely. Looking absolutely. Forward looking forward to it. Thank you again. Thank you to you. Bye-bye. You have just heard episode 58 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for April 26, 2014, with our guest nuclear physicist and science fiction novelist Massimo Marino discussing with us the first two books of his new trilogy, entitled Diogenes and Almost Humans. Your hosts have been station manager Gene Turnbow and the station's executive producer Susan Fox. This episode will air again on Sunday, April 27, 2014, at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You will be able to find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was science fiction illustrator Mark Schirmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The Navigator was played by Corsair's Closet producer Christine Cherry, and the Captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents are copyright 2014 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>